If you're applying to law school now or in the near future, you're going to love today's show. Brigitte Sir, accepted law school admissions consultant and former application reader for UVA Law, is going to help you get accepted to your dream law school. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 550th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. Are you ready to apply to your dream law school? Are you competitive at your target programs? Accepted's law school admissions quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash law dash quiz, take the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your qualifications. Plus, it's all free. Again, take the quiz at accepted.com slash law dash quiz to obtain your complimentary assessment. Our guest today, Brigitte Sir, earned her bachelor's from UT Austin and her JD from UVA. She then went on to travel the world as an international lawyer, working for Human Rights Watch, the International Criminal Court, and other foundations and NGOs. For approximately two years prior to joining Accepted in 2019, Brigitte worked as an application reader for her alma mater, UVA School of Law, and in that capacity, reviewed over 2,500 applications. She was the one recommending admit or deny. Let's find out when she made those recommendations and how she helps Accepted's clients. Brigitte, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Thanks, Linda. I'm happy to be here. Pleasure to have you. Now, let's just start with something fairly basic. <laughs> Actually, not so basic. Yeah. What's new in law school admissions this year? There's a lot new, Linda. <laughs> Maybe too much new. So from year to year, it seems like essays don't change that much. Applications don't change that much. But with the Supreme Court decision past summer, uh, law schools took that opportunity to, to review what they were doing. They want to be compliant with with the decision. But in so doing, they they added quite a few changes. And in my opinion, maybe overloaded a bit on on essays and supplementals and things like that. So it's, it's been a big transition for those of us working in admissions and certainly for, for students who have even more work to do than, than ever. And frankly, from, you know, I wonder if some admissions um, <laughs> committees aren't going to be regretting some of their extra essays at some point because it's going to be longer and longer to read. And exactly. I think, I think maybe, yeah, maybe we'll, Exactly. We might see some cutting back. I have no, I don't have inside information on that, but if I were them, I'd be doing some cutting back by next summer. Yeah. I know um, business schools used to have many more essays and over the years they've, they've cut back quite a bit. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's dive into, I, this is not a change that occurred this year. I think it's a change that's occurred over the last 10, 20 years. And that is that more and more law school applicants or more and more law school students do not go directly from college to law school. Some of they, they take a year off. I think it's frequently to work for a year. Do you advise applicants to quote unquote, take a year off, take a gap year or work before going to law school? Well, I mean, I, I think that law schools have always cared about employability and, and they care about it all the more now because the U.S. News and World Report are fact, is factoring that in to the rankings. And so it becomes a, an important issue. But frankly, I think it's always been important. 
I, I think that if you are what they call K through JD, kindergarten through JD, um, <laughs> it's a very popular term on Reddit and on the socials. If you are K through JD and are otherwise a really you know strong candidate, there's nothing wrong with doing this. You know, it's not like business school or some other graduate schools where it really is more of a requirement. So I think you can get in if you have strong numbers and everything else is lining up well, your essays, your letters, everything else. So there's no reason to take one if you don't want one. However, if there's something wobbly about your application or your GPA is particularly poor or you just don't have the LSAT score you want, then there's absolutely nothing wrong and could even be really good to take not just one year off, but three or four years off, two years off, three or four, whatever you want, because it factors into the to the idea that let's say you really do have a poor GPA. I've seen law schools overcome that and ignore that almost as long as there's been a solid career with some progression and, and some passion behind it, some interest behind it, some skills behind it, and a strong LSAT, I think I think you can overcome that particular weakness. So that might be one reason to do it. As long as you have that strong LSAT to go along with a, a nice career yeah. progression. Let's say you have good grades and you have the LSAT and you want to go K through JD, okay? Are internships important? Yeah, I think I think your that's part of the the soft elements of your application. You know, what kind of summer experiences did you have? Are you you know do you show a well thought out reason for even going to law school? I think some some folks might you know wonder if there's nothing there or if it was all in unrelated matters. Sometimes you can fill that gap in in your essay too to to, to highlight something that may not be obvious on your resume, but this is why I went to law school. I had XYZ experience and I came to law school maybe late in college. That does happen. Or I came to, to law school in my gap year. That's all fine. Okay. When you were reviewing applications for UVA law, what made an application tell you that its author deserved your vote for admission? You know, every element is important to some degree. So what I would always do is I would look at the numbers I would look at where they went to college, when they graduated, their LSAT, their GPA, and then kind of what they've done since they graduated, so to speak, if that were if that were relevant. And that 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 whole package starts helping me figure out is this a viable candidate? And then you start reading their essays. You know, is it well written? Is it is it charming in some way? I mean, it doesn't have to be charming, but it could be helpful to be charming. Is it it could be oh, funny. Yeah. It can be in whatever way. It can be super serious and intentional. It can be lots of different things. There's no one magic way, but it does have to be interesting to read and impressive in some way, right? It's making a good impression in, in that sense, impressive, like it's making an impression on me. And there's really no way to say, you know, sometimes people like to say, oh, that essay was successful. So I'm going to copy that, but adapt it to my story. Not a good way to <laughs> go about yeah. it because there's just so many. And you just want to understand, I, I want to understand why they're going to law school by the end of the personal statement. Not everybody necessarily needs to know that, but I would say most former admissions officers I know, they want to know that by the time they get to the end of the statement. Oh, I see. This is how this all comes together. This is why you're applying to law school versus, you know, medical school or an MA in history, for example. Right. So I think, I think that's your opportunity to kind of tie some things together. You mentioned the personal statement, you know, several times and, and, and its importance. What's your best advice to clients just approaching the personal statement? It's not, I don't mean, obviously it's not to copy or model. You know, if, if I'm, I'm thinking about my life at age, you know, 21, 22, 25, 28, or whenever yeah. they're applying, 
And I'm thinking, how should I structure this? What should I focus on? What would your advice yeah. be? Some students come to us with an idea already for the personal statement, and they're often it's often a good idea. Sometimes folks come to us and don't have one. You know, as you know, we have prompts that that we send them questions. And if you really just give that process an opportunity to work, you you just start drafting. You don't think about, you know, am I structuring something? You're simply putting down ideas, stories from your past, from your life, motivations that you've had, things that have changed your thinking. If you start, if you do that, then we sit down together. I sit with my students and we go over it. And we, we're usually able to identify some good anecdotes from their life that lead us somewhere. And from there, we start hashing out an outline and then they go off and draft. But that, that free writing process, some people resist it, it's true, but the, the students who react well to it end up coming up with some really good um, fodder in that, in that process. When I was working individually with clients and I would, they would either show me you know, free writing or personal statements that they drafted or their resume, or one of the things that I, I was particularly good at was finding a thread that sometimes tied disparate experiences together. I remember one guy in particular, he practically, he couldn't wait to leave to start writing the essay because it was like, now, he, mm -hmm. you know, he knew what he wanted, the, the point he wanted to make. Yeah, and that's right. That's, that's good. And that's our job in some ways to help them find that or, or point out that they have it. It's right there, yes. you know, and yes. sometimes they don't see it until it's on the page. So that, that's kind of, that's a fun moment. Yes. Yeah. Do you recommend that applicants customize their statements for different law schools, for the different law schools that they're applying to? In other words, if they're applying to Penn, it should be one essay. If they're applying to NYU Law, it should be another essay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or at least have a why this school yeah. section? Well, I, I definitely don't think you should have different personal statements for different schools. The, the prompts are almost always broad enough that one personal statement with some modifications is sufficient. And you do want to, you know, you do want to double check the prompt and make sure it falls under. But even vastly differently drafted prompts, ultimately, they're kind of getting at the same thing very often. So I would say have one, I like to start with one two pager, two or two and a little, depending on how much of a, you know, how much this person writes in a lengthy way or not. Um, and then you adapt it, you adapt it up or down. And then yes, if you want to add some Y, X lines at the end, that's great. You don't have to. Some schools specifically want a YX or allow a YX. Others don't really, but they don't really want to hear it anyway. So you don't. You shouldn't feel compelled to put YX at the at the end of the, the personal statement, but you can if you want to. Yeah, and but but what I definitely don't recommend doing is peppering the um, the personal statement with references to a particular school. You don't really want throughout. You don't want to do that because it's more work for you. And I, several times when I was at UVA, I would read a personal state statement that mentioned, you know, Penn or Columbia or whatever, because it's too hard to keep it all separate. Yeah. And it, it's not a great look, you know, no, it's for not. that school. Um, and yet, of course, you know, we're human, you're human, you know, it's, it's, we get that people make mistakes, but for that reason, you shouldn't do it really. You know, right. if you're going to do it, do it at the end. So you're really swapping it out, but you're not peppering it throughout the whole document. I can't tell you how many admissions people I've interviewed for the podcast where that's like the first, you say, what's a common mistake? That's the common mistake. They they get, you know, they're at Harvard, they get Stanford, they're at Penn, they get yep. UVAs, you know, whatever. Yep. Um, and and similarly for LOR writers, you don't really want them to write more than one version either, because 
you can't keep them straight. The one exception is if someone has a really close relationship with the law school, they went there, they taught there, whatever. Okay, then that person can write you one version for that school and then one version for all the other schools. But you really wouldn't want them writing more than two because one, it's it's too much to ask for a LOR writer, but it's also too much for you to keep um, handy. And I did get a couple of those where it was clear that the letter was written for a different school. And I even had one student come back to me later and say, I just found out that my LOR writer wrote it for his alma mater and didn't tell me. And so now every school got that letter. Oh, gosh. And that was really painful. And that LOR writer should have known better because or maybe the student miscommunicated. I don't know. But yeah, that was unfortunate. You don't want to do that. No, ouch. No. But again, again, you know, those kinds of mistakes are a little more understandable because it's more the LOR writers. Yeah, we're not it's the hold LOR writers. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the schools know the applicants are applying to more than one school. Yeah, yeah. So it's still not. It's not a great look. But but no. don't don't absolutely panic if it happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Now you mentioned that schools are adding addenda and diversity statements, etc. Yeah. Who should and who shouldn't write an addendum to address an academic weakness? Well, I mean, that's a lot of questions in one, Linda. But we've got one thing is the diversity statement and how that's That's separate. So we'll get there in a minute. Let's do that separate. Yeah. The other is, so so if you talk about the, yeah, the addendum, there's the LSAT addendum, the GPA addendum, the gap in employment addendum, the gap in education, the character and fitness addendum. Those are five that you should consider whether you need. Hopefully you don't need all five. So in terms of the GPA, who needs one? Well, you know, if your GPA went down one semester for a reason, you're, you know, you were sick during finals or you're somebody, there was a death in the family or something like that. And you can, you know, it's going to be visible to the law school already in the CAS report. They're going to see, oh, 3.9, 3.9, 3.9, 2.8, 3.9. Yeah. So they'll want to know what happened that semester. You know, oh. it, it behooves you to answer because it's helpful. You know, when it's a little more wobbly the whole time, it's just a little less effective. It, it doesn't mean the context might not be as helpful because, you know, you just didn't do that well. If it was just your first semester, I would say you could, I could go either way because it's very, very common when you read because the CAS report does split out each semester for the readers. And it's very common that your worst semester is your first one. And then from there, you see a strong upward trend. That's what they're looking for. Don't really need to explain that. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll understand freshman year, drinking too much beer, whatever it was, <laughs> you know, you learned your lesson, you moved on. So yeah, that would be GPA. If there's something specific to say, or if it just, the numbers really need something. All right. And, and you have context that is more than I just did poorly. I mean, I don't know why I did poorly. Yeah. I did poorly. That doesn't do you any good. Not really. Not really. Then it, it, I mean, but what we referenced before, like, let's say you did poorly, but you've been working five years, then okay, you that's kind of point else. out yeah. that was then, this is now, this is not yeah. who I am. No, I, I, you know, we've had great success with, with that kind of a thing. Right. Right. Oh, that makes sense. A good point. In terms of, we discussed maybe who should, who shouldn't write it. What makes for an effective addendum in connection with a low GPA and academic weakness? I think the the scenario that I mentioned at the beginning, if it's one semester and you're explaining what happened that semester, I think that makes a really good GPA addendum. Uh, that makes a much stronger GPA addendum than, you know, I just graduated in May, but suddenly the light went on that academics is important, you know, and so forgive <laughs> my 2.8 overall, not, not the best one. Um, 
not the best one. I mean, I've seen people do that because, you know, people are, do come to their maturity and their ambition in different moments of their life. And, and people, people know that again, if that's paired with the high LSAT, you could still be in business, but it's, it's, you have more to overcome when, when the GPA is, is really, is really low. And there's not a big gap in time that you haven't proven yourself otherwise. And the LSAT addendum is something else. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Go for it. Is it possible so, to have an LSAT addendum? I mean, that's, that's a tricky one too, because again, you have to have something to say. That's so complicated, Linda. We could talk an hour about the LSAT addendum because there's so many different ways you win reasons. But if it's just one LSAT that was particularly poor and then you did much better, you might just want to give context around why you have that variance, especially if it's a big variance, like more than four or five points, something like that might be important. If it's just overall a low LSAT score, it's a little harder to write one that's good, except let's say you are someone who did poorly on the SAT, ACT, went to college, got a 3.95. You tell them that. You say, yeah. just like I entered my undergrad with a below median standardized test score, I excelled. I'm going to do the same thing in law school. That I think gets some traction. I also had a client years ago, fantastic applicant, and she had a really good GPA. I think the her mother started chemo a week before her LSAT and the day before her LSAT, her mom had a bad reaction to the chemo and, and, and she had to take her into the hospital and she was just a, a wreck. Her mother was hospitalized on the day of the LSAT and she got the lowest score she ever got you know, like on practice exams. So we did an addendum, you know, we, she drafted an addendum at that point and, um, and she got in because yeah. you know, it was, it was so clear she just said what happened, you know, and yeah. at that time you couldn't take, this was, again, it was a long time ago. You couldn't take LSATs. I think you had like a six month period or it was, it was, ah, uh, yeah, you know, it, was, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Cause um, my, my first question to that would be, why not just take it again? So, but there, there were was, different was, rules then. Yeah. yeah. Were, this was like in the yeah. 1990s. Um, yeah. But I remember it so clear. She was, she was a fantastic applicant can take up to five times in five years and it's not necessarily recommended to take it five times but three is totally fine and you know whether it's bang 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 or over a year and a half at three is totally fine and um and then sometimes you do want to explain the variance but yeah i think i think there there are many ways in which you can put your weaknesses in context that are actually helpful and that's one of them right right for sure now you mentioned a few minutes ago the diversity statement how can somebody from a well-represented group respond to diversity questions? I, I don't know the whole history, but it, it has already expanded in terms of what they're looking for. It's not just about race or gender or class or orientation or anything. It's about many different factors, many different things that might have shaped you to the point that in some ways it's a little bit duplicative of a, a personal statement in some ways, right? So it was already changing for most schools. There were a couple of schools that, that wanted a challenges addendum. Like only only submitted if if they're true challenges adversity, then you simply don't do it. If you don't have it, don't do it. Nobody's going to penalize you for not having adversity, right? Right. Or diversity for that matter. And then after the Supreme Court decision, most of them have changed the name, and it's like statement of perspective or life experiences yeah. statement. Mm-hmm. And it, it is maybe looking a little more personal, a little less professional, a little more history. But everyone's got something that shaped them, and they can talk about. Most schools still make it optional. Uh, there are a couple schools like Vanderbilt and uh, Harvard that make it obligatory. So you have to write something. That's one of the, the changes that I'm not so sure are a great thing in terms of making it obligatory, because it is almost like having two full-fledged personal statements. 
you know, and it's so that's a lot of extra work, but it's broad enough that everyone can write something. So that would be my next question was how can the applicant make the best use of both these opportunities, both these tasks, if you will, since they could be duplicative? Well, it's they, they are different enough that you can come up with two different stories. So it's not that the subject matter is duplicative necessarily. It's just a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I think Harvard actually did a really lovely job in terms of the prompt. The prompt makes clear kind of what they're looking for. And I think that was nice to clarify that. I just think it's, you know, one to two pages for each, you know, it's just four pages. And nobody can do a one page personal statement, right? So you got two pages there, a page or two pages for, per it's just a lot. It's a lot to write. It's a lot to read. but I do. I always love the diversity statement. I've always did love it. Even now, I think it's a beautiful personal statement. It does show you something about how uh, how the applicant processes issues or problems or perspectives or experiences. So it's it's lovely. But no one needs to fear, you know, if it's a broad statement, they're definitely going to find something to write about if they want to. Let's move on in the application process. A few law schools like Georgetown, for example, have interviews. What's distinctive yeah. about a law school interview? Well, Georgetown's interview is distinctive from all other interviews because it's a group interview and it's not so much an interview as it is a roundtable, let's say, where they okay. hash out ideas. So the, as far as I understand it, of course, I haven't done one. The dean presents these case studies or these, these examples of applications. Like this person had a character and fitness issue, X, Y, Z. And they talk about it and people say, oh, I would admit that person anyway because of ABC. Or I would not admit that person because X, Y, Z. So everyone kind of shares it. So it's an exercise in, in group dynamics and, and, you know, maybe advocacy. It's not right or wrong. Like you can legitimately make your point, but how do you make your point? So that's very, very different, but lots of people do it. It's very common to have that one. Then there's the second category, which are the online ones where basically you're talking into the machine. Um, there's no human. Um, and I think those are hard for students, but once they practice them, it's okay. Northwestern does that. I think UT is doing it this year for the first time, or at least more broadly, I think they might be doing it for everyone. I haven't figured that out, but lots of people have it this year where they haven't last year. And uh, Northwestern does that. And then they're the one, oh, Vandy does alumni interview. And then the other version is the occasional interview with an actual admissions officer. No school, to my knowledge, does it for everyone, but they do it selectively. It's never a bad thing to be selected for an interview, but it also, I would say probably most people get in without an interview. So don't, don't panic if you don't get an interview, right? And in terms of what they ask, you know, why are you, why are you applying to law school? Why are you applying to this law school? something from your resume, maybe some behavioral type questions or situational questions. What's an example? Um, what's an example when you've had conflict in the workplace and how did you handle it? Or some kind of communication-based questions. You know, the whole failures question, you know, what, when did you learn from a, a failure? Things like that. Now, what do applicants frequently just not understand about the law school admissions process that they really need to grasp before they start applying? Every so often, I know I would, I would come across an applicant and I wish I could just, you know, shake him by the shoulder and say, look, you just don't get this. I'm always surprised by the, the range of applicants in terms of what they know or don't know, right? They're, they're the applicants who have read every Reddit post, you know, on earth and come to me with all of these questions like, oh, I read this and this, or survey all their friends and come at me with all these, you know, and then they're the ones who basically don't know anything about the process. And it's like they just decided yesterday that they were 
law school and they, you know, T14, don't know what that is. LOR, don't know what that, you know. So, so I'm, I'm always, I, I find that very interesting that there's such a range. One of my I sort of pet peeves is, is the one where they think there's like, they just have to unlock like the one magic thing to say or the one magic thing to have on the resume and that's going to unlock everything. That kind of bothers me because it's just so not the way the process is. Right. And or or like you say, that the person who's panicked because they don't have a diversity factor. And does that mean they're not getting into law school? No, that's not how that works either. You know, so just to try to be a little genuine about the process, like this is who I am. This is my thinking. These are my experiences. And, you know, and and just to, to come at it just with some genuine interest and in, in, in focus on, on, on the process. I will say one thing sometimes they underestimate is how long the process is. You oh, know, yeah. it's like. Yeah, you have your personal statement. That's the hardest resume, let's say a diversity statement, statement, perspective, whatever you want to call it. There's still a lot to do after you have that one main package. There's a lot of uh, supplementals evermore, and and it takes a long time. And people also underestimate. I know you you asked me for one. I'm telling you a lot, but they also Please, underestimate the, <laughs> the form. Yes, the, for, the application yes, the form. They underestimate. Yes, how long that takes and how. How easy it is to muck that up with with typos or not answering something you should have answered or answering something that didn't apply to you. So uh, people are just, you know, maybe at that point they're tired. And but I really encourage them at that point to slow down and and really focus on that because you don't after all that work you don't want to you don't want to mess it up with a, a shoddy form. Right. Just right. Would be a real bummer. It would be. It is when they do mess it up. Also, some of those boxes are really important. So they deserve a little yeah. bit of thought as opposed to just it's midnight. I want to go to sleep. Let me get it done. Right. So, you don't want to uh, press send at midnight, in my opinion. <laughs> you no, know. you don't. You yeah. really don't. No, yeah. no. Now we've, we kind of already touched on this, but I like to ask what are the most common mistakes to avoid in law school applications? I think we've, we kind of discussed it with the last yeah. question, but do you have any, any, anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, you, you you don't want to tread the same ground in your personal statement as in your diversity statement or your whatever statement we're talking about, the, the supplementals. You also don't want to, you know, absolutely maximize every supplemental on earth, you know, because law students typically are high achievers. They're keen to make a good impression. So they think more is more and it's just not. Or they think, how could I possibly, you know, if, if there's an optional answer question, I'm going to answer it. And, and typically we say, yes, of course, if there's, if there, if a law school gives you the option of doing an essay on one of five topics, do one, right? But if they say one or two, don't necessarily do two, you know, one, one, one pager is better than two, two pagers that, that is going to exhaust the reader and make the reader irritated when they're, when they're reviewing you. So um, I, I think that's the mistake is sometimes just overdoing things. Yeah, and just having some fresh perspective. It's 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 good to be light and fun in a certain moment, and sometimes those optional essays are good for that because it's it's a it's a moment to talk about yourself in a different way. And I I really like when they do that rather than you know try to over impress every you know with their you know seriousness on every single essay. Any last words of advice in a positive sense? We've talked about mistakes. What are, what are things they yeah. should be doing? Genuinely, I, I, I think the personal statement and the statement of perspective slash diversity statement are really fun to read. Most of the time, I would say it's that's your goal. That's not I don't mean fun that like, haha. I mean, interesting. It's engaging. Sometimes it's breathtaking. That's I remember that from the UVA side is that I learned so much about what young people are going through in our in our society. And I continue to learn that now. And a lot of it's actually quite tragic. And when you write about it, 
in a way that that you're opening up the world to people like different perspectives, different, you know, religions, race, everything, or just even personal experiences, it's engaging to the reader. And that's a nice thing to see. And and lots of students get there. And I I really like to see that. I see how hard they work. I mean, all of these high GPAs, although there is a lot of great inflation. I just realized the other day that UCLA, the cutoff for cum laude, which is usually, I don't know, three, five or six, 3.95 is just plain old cum laude. Yeah, really. So at least for a couple semesters during COVID, because I think grade installation was a was a real <laughs> was oh, a thing. Really, yeah. So, but that that creates its own problem because you the GPA medians are so high. Like, yeah, who on is. earth? How can you have a three point nine five median for your law school class? It's it's wow. insane. There's no distinguishing, and then God forbid you have a three point seven, and suddenly you're like, oh my God, I did so terribly. That's that's yeah. a sad. That's a little bit sad, but that's a whole yeah. reform issue. But yeah, that's a different issue, but it is an issue. It is an issue. It is an issue. It is an issue. Right. You have a 3.7 and you think like you did poorly. That's that's a problem. Yeah. It's it, also it's a problem a, a if problem. nobody ever got something other than an A. That's a different problem. It is. Of, yep. You know, just well, and especially if part of that reason is because they selected their classes so they wouldn't get below an A. You know, that that that's not a, that's not a great look. And yet I don't blame the student. That's part of the, the, no. the system. Right. Yeah, it's like yeah. if you if it matters that much and. Of course, they're going to select on that basis. I always think they should say, you know, anything over a certain amount, you're in the yes category. You know, I, I don't mean automatic admit or anything. I just mean it doesn't matter if it's a 3.8 or 3.95. It's right. that's you're already in the top category. But just to, and then you know, you think of the the folks who had the really challenging majors or something like that. It, it is a prejudice to them in some ways. But right, yeah, Certainly. absolutely. Any last words of advice for law school applicants? Start early. In my perfect world, someone would have the LSAT behind them in April or June, maybe August, spend the summer writing essays and, you know, because th- typically they don't change enough to not be doing that already. And then try to apply early in the fall. And then, you know, God forbid you do worse on the LSAT. You have several other options to still make it up. You don't want to be doing your first essay and your first LSAT in November. You know, you really don't. <laughs> so I would just say start early and you know, just keep moving. And but you are still happy to help applicants that come to you today, right? <laughs> of course, I am. I am. We always talk about like Plan A, Plan B. No, of course. Right. And um, life ha- life happens. You know, for a lot of people, it's not because they planned it this way. It's just where we are, and we we do the best we can. Um, and it's still fine. You know, I used to always be really panicked about, oh my gosh, someone's taking the January LSAT. That's not good. But it can be, it can work out just fine. It really depends on many other factors. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning to be more flexible about the January LSAT. Okay. And you mean the L, January LSAT for this fall's applicants, not next year's January LSAT is fine for next year's applicants, right? Well, yes. I mean, yes. if you absolutely have to take it and still apply this cycle, you can. Yes. Um, I, and yeah. I, I, you know, it, it, we do have good examples of when that really did work out well, but right, right. Um, it's not my favorite one for sure. Right. What do you wish I would have asked you? I think you covered so many questions, Linda. I mean, I think it's just, it's a, it's just fun to do this work because you get to advise students and you get to mentor them through the process. And I think that's what motivates all of us who who do this work. It certainly motivates me um, to build that relationship with a young person and provide them guidance as they, as they, you know, embark on this big, big career change. I think it's uh, or career to, to begin with, but yeah, I think you ask all the right questions. Thank you. Yeah. And it's also wonderful to, to just meet them. 
get to know somebody. Oh yeah. You yeah. From a completely different background. So it was Yeah. Now that you've mentioned that, the one thing we didn't really talk about is character and fitness. Go for it. Okay. So th- that's one that I think they have that on other graduate school applications, but for law school, it's it's much more detailed because yes. it is the law. And, you know, generally, you know, the, 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 the bar is going to ask certain questions. So law schools want to have to be aware of what someone's coming in with. And I think that's one where people who have more serious ones get really worked up. I really like to advise around that because there are ones that are maybe not as serious as they think it is, but then there are also other ones that are a little more serious than maybe they you, think it is. Can you so, give examples of both? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, so, so they're like, every school has different prompts, but, but they're basically two main categories. Did you get in trouble at school? Did you get in trouble with the law? Those are kind of the big categories. Getting in trouble with the school, no one's really going to care if you had a beer in the dorm, candle in the dorm drunk on the quad, like any like one time thing, I don't think most schools care about that. It's a pattern that becomes a problem, you know, and I, I have worked with one guy who did have six write ups for alcohol. Oh, you know, gosh. at some point that becomes a problem. But the last one was when he was 22 years old, and he's now 26. Is that really going to, you know, there's always context. Still not ideal. <laughs> I don't want my kids to have six write ups. But <laughs> so those are not as bad until there's a pattern. Violence, right academic dishonesty, those kinds of things are more serious. And now we've kind of gone over into the law enforcement, you know, speeding ticket, no one cares. If you have 12, okay, again, the pattern is a little bit of a problem. I mean, you're going to have to show some distance or some reform from from the time. And it's very important to read each one very distinctly because they do ask different questions. And you might have a character and fitness addendum that you don't have to upload to school ABC, but you do have to upload it and UVA is distinct because it asks, have you ever been let go from a job? Almost no other school does that. Right. But they want to know that. So you ha- you do have to be really careful with that section. And sometimes people underestimate the, the nuances there. And I think you've answered this question, but like if you've been let go from a job, well, if, it's, it's different if you're let go as a part of a layoff with thousands or if you're let go for yeah. cause. Exactly. Uh, and that's maybe what they're getting out there. Like if it was for fraud or more significant, if it was like you say, you know, you're in the tech field and 50% of your, of your company's gone, that that's fine. And nobody's going to, it's not so much that they're going to judge you for it, but it's a way to get at maybe more significant issues that are hiding underneath that haven't been revealed yet. And really the main reason people want to do that or law school fast that is because it's important for, for the bar. You don't want to have gone right. through the effort and the expense of getting a law degree and then you can't. I think there's reforms coming, right? Because you have seen expungements now. More and more schools are saying if it's expunged or then don't don't reveal it. Some schools are still asking for you to reveal it. So again, that's just another distinction you have to read really carefully. Okay, great. This has been fantastic. Very informative. Uh, Brigida, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Listener, if you would like to learn more about Brigida or work with her on your law school application, we're going to include links to her bio in the show notes at accepta.com slash 550, as well as to her contact page, which is accessible from her bio page. Listener, thank you too for joining Brigida Sir and me for our 550th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, I have a suggestion for you. Subscribe. That way you won't miss any of our future shows, whether with fantastic admissions consultants, law school admissions directors, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. You can find subscribe links in the show notes at, you guessed it, accepted.com slash 550. Quick reminder, don't miss the law school admissions quiz. Find out if you are really ready to apply, competitive at your target schools. You can take the quiz at accepted.com slash law dash quiz. 
Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk, produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 